Welcome to The Last Call. It's a podcast featuring two journalists, one's British, that's me, my name is John Sweeney, the other's American, his name is Michael Weiss. Our biggest argument is over whose country is more fucked. Michael, explain who I am. Gosh, your bio is so long, I think we'll run out of time for this podcast. Uh, John Sweeney has pissed off Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, the Church of Scientology, and the government of North Korea. An old school reporter, he's worked at the London Observer, then the BBC. He's written 12 books, 12, Jesus, including four novels, the 200,000 copy bestseller, Elephant Moon, set in World War II Burma, two modern day political thrillers, Cold and Road, and his latest about fake news in Stalin's Moscow in 1933, The Useful Idiot, which I should add, I haven't read. He tweets from at John Sweeney Roar. Michael Weiss is no John Sweeney, so let's just get that out of the way right away. He's a former CNN investigative reporter and the current editor-at-large of the Daily Beast, whatever that is. He's written, actually correctly, co-written one book, ISIS Inside the Army of Terror, which I have read, and that's a New York, best, New York Times bestseller. He's also written a satirical TV series, which no one has made. It's about a Russian oligarch who's asking to swing a US election, who is asked to swing a US election, but tries as hard as not to. Michael is currently at work on his second book, A History of Russia's Military Spy Agency, the GRU, which he must have pissed off at some point because they tried to hack him. He lives in New York and tweets from Michael D. Weiss. So uh, this is a podcast and both of us like a drink and I'm drinking, I'm taking a sip now of an Italian Barolo. Mike, what are you drinking? Well, I should tell you, it's it's noon where I am now. Actually, it's 1230 to be more exact. So happy hour for me begins appropriately enough, given the state of quarantine at around 1130 in the morning. But uh, I'm, I'm quite boring in my selection. I, I'm now back. I used to be on tequila when I lived on the West Coast uh, and was, was quite snobbish about the, the, the different varieties of tequila there. But that took a toll on me in a massive way. So I'm back on gin. And because I'm getting up there, although not nearly as up there as you're getting, uh, I've decided to cut the tonic out and put club soda, which I'm happy to report um, the actor Ryan Reynolds apparently also does. And he's in fighting form much better than I. Uh, so I drink a Bombay Sapphire club soda with just a little wedge of lime. And that's pretty much what I'll be drinking throughout the course of this, no doubt, doomed endeavor of ours. <laughs> well, this is, is it's, it's two busy hacks talking about the world. Obviously, the virus is hitting um, us, the whole world. But, but also, it's having an effect on, on politics, world politics, and the way we we think about the things. Some of the, obviously, the big conversation is who is the worst leader um, of the world, right? Of all the countries in the world right now, and it's got to be Donald Trump, hasn't it? Yeah, I think I agree with you. I mean, you you put out a, a kind of <laughs> provocative video of your what you call your panic diary in the state of coronavirus mania, arguing that um, that Trump. <clears throat> more sinister than than Putin. I don't know necessarily I'd agree with that because for me, sinister 
at least connotes a kind of an intellectual capacity to carry out the malevolent deeds. And I think we talked about this the other day. Trump is so uh, bumbling and and boorish and incompetent that, you know, th there is malice to be sure. Um, but there's not a, a, a sort of schematic plan for how to impose the malice or how to, to carry it out. Um, but well, in terms of, of the damage being wrought right now, yeah, I mean, you know, there was a good article in The Atlantic by uh, David Frum, a very deep dive, just sort of a TikTok of all the, the, the lies and deceptions that were peddled by the administration going back to um, early January, uh, where they were downplaying the threat of this pandemic before it was a pandemic. But according to the latest reporting, the White House had evidence that they could very well turn into a pandemic. Um, and look, it is, you know, I made a joke the other day that I never thought in a million years Trump would be the Jude Law character from that mediocre film Contagion. You know, the Infowars style <laughs> YouTube broadcaster who's telling everybody that this whole thing, I mean, millions are dead from the plague and he's telling them that there's this miracle cure. And of course, he, it turns out he's a, an investor and he ends up getting nicked by the SEC at the end of the film. But and, and you know, lo and behold, I mean, Trump is pushing this anti-malarial drug, uh, which has been prescribed by doctors, just to, to make that point. However, its efficacy is in, in deep question. And Dr. Fauci, who is the only functioning bureaucrat in the US government at the moment, uh, has 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 thrown a lot of cold water on on the need to push this as the kind of the, the, the treatment going forward. And it turns out, according to the New York Times, that Donald Trump is an investor in a French company that manufactures the fucking drug. Is anybody surprised to read that? I was waiting for that shoe to drop. The minute, the minute he turned out and came out and said, you know, well, you should take it, take it, don't take it. You've got nothing to lose. And of course, you know, the answer to that, according to a medical professional, is actually you could lose your life if you take this, well, you know. So somebody has. Now, have, have you taken, um, I can't even pronounce it properly, like the president of the United States, what's it called? Chloroquine or something like this. Have you yeah, had it? Hydroxychloroquine, um, something like that. Yeah. No, I've never taken yeah. it because I, I, I've traveled, well, I'm, I'm now in the Detroit suburbs, so I suppose that's a hell spot for, for many concerned. But uh, not like you, my friend. I'm not a storied foreign correspondent, but I, I would imagine you've been in some environs that require anti-malarial medication, yeah? Yes, so I've been, I've taken, uh, I'm pretty sure I've taken that, and it, it's pretty horrible the moment you take it, you can, you can feel the kind of chemical poisons, yeah. so it kind of zaps the, um, the malaria bug, but also it, 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 um, it it's, it's very, very unpleasant. Does it work? There's no good evidence that it, um, that it does. And the moment Trump says in that creepy voice, I'm quite, oh, what's the harm? Why don't you use it? You're no, you know, you know, this is this is a man selling snake oil. By the way, on your earlier attack, when you said that I said that um, um, that uh, Trump was now more sinister than um, than Putin, I would uh, agree with you that I would be wrong in saying that had I said that, but I didn't. What I said was that he, the darker figure now, because darker. Trump has gone yeah. darker. He, he's gone from being a clown and he didn't, for a lot of the time, didn't matter. And there was a positive in the, that actually that Trump doesn't like blood. He doesn't like, um, it would seem he didn't want to send American soldiers into, into wars. And I kind of gave him a bit of credit for that. Mm. But now with, 
virus, he's called it wrong at every single moment. Yeah. But but is it possible the two of us, from our um, uh, perspective, uh, bar stools only separated by the Atlantic and uh, half of America, that we're um, that our own profession, if it is a profession or trade or craft or whatever it is. That journalists are getting this wrong. Are journalists enjoying baiting Trump? And are we ending up reporting Trump too much, too savagely, or even too self-interestedly, too self, out of too much self-interest, and therefore we're screwing up somehow? What do you think? Well, I, I go back and forth on this. I mean, look, it, it is absolutely the case that his candidacy was born aloft by the, the kind of macabre media fixation. On him. I mean, I, I well remember that that famous dissension down the, the guilt staircase or escalator or sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, it was an escalator, wasn't it? In, at Trump Tower, whenever that so was that, 15. I've been, have you met him? Have you met him in Trump Tower? I, I have never met him. No, I know you do. And I, I want to talk about your um, your, your fabled <laughs> encounters and entanglements with Donald Trump in a minute. But look, I mean, it, yeah, I look. The way I see things is is he he did manage cleverly to seize upon a legitimate grievance that the American electorate has got when it comes to journalism and media. I mean, we are meant to be the gatekeepers of crucial and necessary information, but increasingly, particularly in the 21st century, with the advent of digital technology and the kind of democratization of media, for lack of a better term, uh, the quality has been failing, I think. And it's it's been on the decline. And, you know, you, you, I'm not talking about these stupid gotcha memes on Twitter. One day a presenter said X and the next day when new information came to light or there was more evidence to suggest something else, he said Y. I'm talking about things like, look, Trump is an unprecedented spectacle for American news consumers. I mean, it's the first time we've got an authoritarian populist man in the White House who does, it's, it's a weird combination of, of clown, Mussolini, um, and just, you know, for, for all his, his pomp and, and braggadocio about being this brilliant CEO, I mean, you know, you've reported on it, he has failed at every turn in his businesses. You know, he is, he is, his companies have filed for bankruptcy. He's just, he's good at getting away without paying any penalty or, 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 or price for his incompetence. And I think he's, he's coasted on that. Uh, for the last three years and change. And now, unfortunately, you've got a situation, a, a real catastrophe in this country where as many as 200,000 Americans could die. And I'm not, this is not to blame Donald Trump for the, you know, the creation of this virus, but certainly to blame him for not taking the proper precautions and declaring a state of emergency uh, much sooner than, than he had done. But, but there are instances, for instance, I, I, I told you uh, yesterday, I think, you know, this this baiting of Dr. Fauci by members of the press, uh, in other words, journalists who, who put a microphone in his, his face and, and basically out of a sense of titillation and a desire to get a good scoop, they want him to criticize or denounce Trump. Now, I understand the impulse there for the story, but we're, we're well past fucking around here. And as far as I, I can tell, Dr. Fauci, as I said, is the only competent bureaucrat in this country, the only real source of credible information about this plague and what we have to do to countermand it. I don't want this guy getting fired. And he will get fired if Donald Trump feels that, A, he's being disloyal, or B, 
uh, he's stealing Trump's limelight. And both of those things have happened. So, you know, I can pick up the New York Times on one day uh, and, and read Dr. Fauci, the internal, you know, dissenter within the administration and attempts to get Fauci to crawl out even farther on that limb in denouncing the president. And then the next day, of course, oh, well, it turns out now the fucking alt-right and every subreddit chat forum is accusing him of being part of the deep state. And now Donald Trump is is increasingly on the outs with Dr. Fauci. It's just, it's look, we do, you don't, media should never be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And sometimes I feel that people in our so-called profession or trade uh, like to become the story or to to facilitate it. Um, and I, look, again, I, you know, we, I see this from from both sides of the glass, right? I've been inside media organizations and institutions you have for much longer than I. But as, as somebody who's now a consumer of news primarily and who's in fear for his life and his family's life and well-being, as I say, I mean, it's this is not the time to to, you know, play fast and loose with let's see who we can get fired tomorrow, you know? Yes. And another problem is that in, in this time of emergency, the number of, of working journalists has been reduced massively, in yeah. part because no one else is interested in that. the kind of stories that you and I like to do is, OK, so this is the official story. Well, let's have a look at what's really happening underneath. But you need an, you, you can't. It's very hard. It's not impossible, but it's very hard to do that during a lockdown. And so what you've got is an elevation of, in Britain, we call it the lobby correspondence. Mm. And there is a constant critique. Um, some of them are good. Some of them are very good. But some of them are similar to courtiers who who are trusted by one side or the other, by the Tories or Labour, to, to deliver um, the... the the best kind of message that the party, the Tories or Labour, um, um, once said. And the problem is that the courtier journalists as a group are now the people who are asking the tough questions or not so tough questions and often the not well-informed questions. And it's enormously frustrating sitting on the sidelines thinking, hey, come on, boys and girls, but mainly boys, you can do better than this. So yeah. there was a long time before, I mean, we had Boris, get better Boris, Boris has done the greatest single piece of public service he's ever done in his life by contracting the virus. And suddenly everybody in Britain now gets it, that if the prime minister of the country is locked up in intensive care, then it could happen to any any one of us. And he's a healthy looking individual. So this thing is brutal. He's 55. He's well, full of life, and bang, he's in trouble and he's on oxygen. So, yeah. um, and it, it's difficult. I don't want to be, uh, I want him to get better, and I wish him and his family well. Having said that, the narrative here is not quite as dark and, cl and kind of mad clownish that, um, uh, that you suffer from Trump, but it's also true. I think that there is a fair criticism to make as the British government they were too slow um we didn't do lockdown quickly enough we don't have enough ventilators we don't have enough masks personal protective equipment for our for our nurses and doctors for our care workers and as a result we are um we're getting bad numbers we're two weeks behind italy italy's now on um 16,000 or so dead we're on 6,000 dead and let's remember there's no cure right but 
But if you and I were Russian reporters, what kind of conversation would we be having about Vladimir Putin right now? Well, it's the the dialectic. I mean, it depends where Russian-born reporters working in Moscow or wherever in the Russian Federation, or are we Western correspondents trying to get news out of Russia and not lose our access to Russia, right? This is the, the careful <laughs> dialectic. That has to be. Yeah, yeah, you were you were famously what I think you were doorstepped by some state propaganda organ when you were basically you know reporting the truth on Putin or I think it was to do with Ukraine was it um, and there's no, that famous so I've done two things with yeah. two two things one is um, after the shooting down of MH17 the right. Air Boeing in which 298 people died. I went and uh, I did a story for BBC Panorama. And I was working for them then, and I ended up um, crashing um, Vladimir Putin opening a mammoth museum in eastern Siberia in Yakutsk. And um, my beard was long at that time. I'd been to my niece's wedding somewhere in the home counties, like four weddings and a funeral kind of place. And um, I still had my wedding gear on, suit and tie. And and then I flew nine time zones east of Yakutsk and there's a queue of professors of mammothology and I looked like a professor of mammothology and Putin, <laughs> uh, Putin walked up the steps and uh, and everybody else, all the other professors of mammothology were shitting themselves and I uh, walked forward, shook him by the hand and said, tell me about the killings in Ukraine. Right. And at that point, all the cameras, the Kremlin media, they all switched on because this, they assumed, had been pre-agreed. It wasn't. And we ended up in a basement um, for a while um, with no mobile phone access. And then um, 2018, um, three or four years later, we were doing a story uh, during the fake Russian presidential election where only where his main rival, Alexei Navalny, wasn't allowed to run. And we interviewed Navalny and his supporters, and we were being followed 24-7 by the Russian secret police, the FSB, or somebody else, but probably them, certainly them. And um, and I was doorstepped twice by um, Russian state media, once in St. Petersburg and once in Moscow, by people who were just sort of having a go at me because I was asking critical questions of the nature of Russian democracy. So... I'd much rather be an American or a Brit than a Russian. Because yeah. the worst that would happen to you is you'd, you'd be chucked out or they, they would put your, your visa application on ICE indefinitely. Yes. Um, yeah. And being chucked out actually is is unusual for them. I mean, they did it to David Satter famously. He was the first mm -hmm. American to be thrown out of Russia since the end of Soviet Union. He's, uh, never, he's never let that go. He writes uh, yeah. fantastic books. Um, where they, I've, um, him and Peter, um, I can never pronounce his name, Peter Pomerantsov. Pomerantsov, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, the the two of them have written for some fantastic books. But Sata, I've met um, Sata, and he's he's so on it. So well, the for, for for what I what I gather with David is, you know, he was a dog with a bone on the Moscow apartment bombing story. Yes, uh, and yes. that. Because if you think about it, if, if that turns out to be true, and for those who, who don't know, I mean, there's a bit of a longstanding allegation that the infamous bombings of several Moscow apartment buildings in 1999 were planned and perpetrated by the FSB 
probably under Putin's directorship, the, the ball got rolling, even though he was then um, you know, pushed into the premiership and then ultimately the presidency. Um, and that this whole thing was a kind of false flag to um, justify a, a war against uh, Chechnya. Uh, and the, the most compelling bit of evidence is um, uh, Ryazan, uh, where they, I mean, the FSB was sort of caught dead to rights. Um, you can read David on this. I mean, it's every Western correspondent who reported on that understood. And I think at some point the government even acknowledged that this was a training exercise to test the vigilance of these lowly, these lowly apartment dwellers who thought their their whole fucking building was going to go up in flames. Uh, anyway, I mean, that is the whole kit and caboodle of Putinism. If that if that's shown to be true, then this man doesn't escape the the most dread accusation or, or uh, indictment, which is that he's a state terrorist and he's a state terrorist who perpetrates terror against his own people. This actually comes back to the point earlier we made. We were talking about, you know, who's worse, Trump or, or Putin. And, and if there's a willful intent to murder in order to boost your political favorability um, or your popularity versus criminal incompetence, however motivated by greed or venality, which ultimately leads to the death of innocent people. I think I think the the summary judgment's got to come down on the uh, on the former rather than the latter. But but to your question about what would you do? I mean, how do you, you know, you, we've seen in the last two weeks Russia playing a very clever propaganda and frankly intelligence game, particularly with the. Um, the consignment of humanitarian aid, quote unquote, to Italy, 80 percent of which, according to an Italian newspaper and now the Italian military who went on record with Coda's story, uh, it was useless. And what was the real purpose of this? Well, it was to dispatch uh, Russian military officers, particularly GRU officers uh, and, and those uh, attached to the radiological and biological chemical science division to Italy to essentially do reconnaissance and intelligence gathering work. Yeah, it's um, dark stuff. By the way, Mike, can I come yeah. in? So I went to Ryzen, um in 2000. And so the story is that um, there was two apartment blocks get blown up and maybe 300 people are killed mm -hmm. in Moscow. And this is a justification for the, uh, the Second Chechen War. Yeah. And Putin has got no visibility as a politician. Boris Yeltsin who's a drunk and a loser and hopeless at this point in his career, has announced this guy and he's on a two, and Putin is on 2%. You know, everybody's saying, who the hell is he? And he looks I like... I think, you, I think you said Boris Johnson when you meant to no, say... I, I meant Boris Yeltsin. I'm sorry. I'm Poor slurring. Boris, I'm, no, he's getting I, it from I, both ends from you today, hasn't he? I have, I have, lots, in, I have lots in common with Boris uh, Yeltsin. But very <laughs> little in common with Boris Johnson. But... Then I went uh, in 2000, I went to Ryazan and I spoke to people who are in the block of flats. And I can remember one guy who was uh, some kind of um, TV engineer, radio engineer, a bright man who said, listen, we were all ordered to leave the flats at three o'clock in the morning, including um, an elderly lady who was dying because the authorities, the local authorities were really scared. They caught these two people who had planted the bomb yeah. and, and the local um, the head of the, the local oblast or county was um, had been in the bomb squad in the Russian army and had a proper good bomb detector stuff. And he um, 
the sent in a bomb squad guy who took the bomb apart mm -hmm. and there was a real detonator and there was real explosives called hexagen yeah, it was hexagen hexagen i think was the um the explosive. Yes. yeah and he, and he knew exactly what it was and mm -hmm. and i bought for 500 dollars i bought a picture of the detonator um mm -hmm. someone who'd, who'd um who'd taken that picture and it was there was no doubt whatsoever in my mind from that this was a dark operation by the FSB, the Russian secret police, to blow up fellow Russians and then blame it on the Chechens. Mm -hmm. So this is Putin's original sin. So you're exactly right. The thing with Trump, though, is that his abdication of leadership, the fact, you know, confronted with this massive, terrifying disease with no cure, he's flogging snake oil and yet again being the most sort of mean-minded person for example, with the city of New York, which doesn't like him, which doesn't vote for him. So New York State, you're not getting the ventilators you need. And this, even though it, there isn't the kind of original sin star malevolence that um, that uh, Putin has, I think the, 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 the consequences of Trump's ab abdication of leadership, mm. not for the states, but for the whole world, there is no global plan, there is no coming together of the world and instead we're turning into some ghastly zombie apocalypse um, movie where different countries different states are competing for a declining number of ventilators and all the rest of it that's yeah. trump and effectively it makes trump the darker person yeah no i think i think i agree with that and for the moment right i mean in the context of this this uh, pandemic i mean I don't know, John, the, the problem I, I deal with is, I mean, you know, my opinions about this president and, uh, you know, long opposed him. And, and as a New Yorker, by the way, uh, having to, you know, walk down any street in Manhattan and see the cover of the New York Post or the Daily News back when he was, you know, um, cheating on his wives and, and being bailed out and, and going bankrupt and, you know, phoning in these anonymous or pseudonymous tips to tabloid reporters just to keep his name in the headlines. I mean, he, he was this, this unavoidable, ever-present orange menace long before he imposed his will on, on the entire nation. And I mean, I didn't fucking like him then. I, I, I can't stand him now. Um, but I have to be honest, you know, I'm, 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 I'm kind of, I don't know if desensitized is the word or, uh, yes. you know, I, I, I've built up so much sort of scar tissue, emotional and psychic scar tissue of the last couple of years that you know, everybody on Twitter rages about these press conferences. But what do you expect from this guy? You know, I, th this is the problem. I mean, you know, we, we can talk about, we can make a knowledge, and I'm guilty of this. You know, the, the, the one cardinal rule for me you know, as a journalist is don't traffic in moral equivalence because it's tawdry, it's unseemly, and it's also the height of, of intellectual dishonesty, right? When you when you start to say, well, we can't talk about, for instance, the Moscow apartment bombings or the annexation of Crimea uh, or the internment of Muslims in China, because what about the United States and X, Y, and Z? That always struck me as, as just a, a kind of bad faith. Um, but it's it's become impossible to uh, to resist the lure to draw these analogies to, at the very least, authoritarian dictatorship or at the very most 
totalitarian systems. I mean, one of the, the scholars, I don't know if you read him, I, I read him, is a brilliant historian, Tim Snyder. Um, he's yeah, been thinking I mean, about he's, this and, and sort of, and I, I take I take all of this, you know. Uh, What's the book called? Is it The Tyranny, the tyranny on Tyranny? On tyranny right? the, I'm sorry, The Road yeah. to Tyranny. And then there's another sort of little chapbook about sort of how to detect when your country is is tilting in, a, in this dreaded direction. Um, but but here's my problem with this kind of analysis is that, again, we're not talking about the big lie with Donald Trump. We're talking about a, 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 an infinite number of little and almost superfluous lies um, where there, there is no there, there is no method. There is no system. Now, we, we of course, you know, in the Soviet era, I mean, there's the famous story when, when the Hitler-Stalin pact was signed in 1939. I think it was a, the French Communist Daily ran two different and completely contradictory <laughs> editorials in the morning and evening edition about Nazi Germany, yeah, and about the, the you know the, the popular resistance to it. But I, I get that. I mean that that is a matter of state policy has changed, and therefore all our epistemology, all of our our sense of history must change accordingly. And that that is an, a, a a top down engineering program. That, that to me is intelligible, however horrifying. Here, Trump himself doesn't remember the last lie he told. So there's no real uh, coordinated effort to try and engage in this revisionist history uh, or, or you know, the erasure of people from the record. It doesn't exist. In fact, he can't erase people from the record because he keeps fucking tweeting about them after he sacked them, right? It's, it's the politics of personal grievance. It's the politics of narcissism. And yeah, there are elements of a personality cult here, but it's actually weirdly, it's not a cult that that Trump himself has tried to build. It's just it has sprung up around him. I think simply be, for fear of being attacked or savaged by him, or yeah, I mean, as you point out, the, the, this sort of um, retributive nature of depriving New York of of badly needed ventilators. Well, if you're a politician, particularly in the GOP now, which has lost all spine. Um, you are not going to speak out for fear of, of, of losing your seat in the Senate or the House or having this madman start ranting and raving about you on Twitter. And then that leads ultimately to online attacks, uh, a, 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 a campaign of defamation by people Donald Trump has never even heard of, much less met, but they are all lockstep behind him. Uh, so you see what I mean, though? It, this is not he's not clever enough to be the kind of tyrant that we've been warned about. Um, you know, there, there, there's just an element of the low life from Queens to, to him and, and one who has taken on this kind of world historical mantle uh, through some godforsaken accident of history. But um, I, I actually don't worry that America in the long term is going to be so badly damaged by this that it can't recover. The institutions have proven quite resilient and quite resistant to his his attempts to hijack and to dismantle them, uh, and even the things that that haven't quote unquote succeeded, uh, the Russia investigation in, in terms of I mean there were people and and here again we we, we touch upon the, the failure of the media there were people who on a day to day basis were trying to convince a lot of Americans that this man was going to be frog marched out of the Oval Office in handcuffs by Bob Mueller himself, and I don't think that was ever in the offing even amongst those of us who really believed in some, you know, conspiracy um, with elements of, of the Russian security services or Russian oligarchs or Kremlin agents or whatever. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's so 
ad hoc. It's so kind of bumbling. And I suppose one can make the argument that that's worse in a way. You know, um, hold on a second. Uh, yeah. We ought to explain what we're doing uh, for people who um, who've uh, fallen asleep or whatever. This is the last call. <laughs> you say that after I've been talking for about five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, I did. Uh, this is the last call. It's a conversation between two boozy hacks. Um, I'm John Sweeney, and he is. Michael Weiss. Uh, I was waiting for you to call yourself. But anyway, and this is a podcast in which we're trying to explore um, our life and times and the time of the virus and power and politics and all of that. A couple of thoughts about Trump. Um, I made a film, it's up on YouTube, about Trump's links with the mob. Um, and it's got um, three million or so hits on YouTube. And I talked to a wonderful um former um village voice reporter called um wayne barrett who sadly passed away and um it was early 2016 and i asked wayne what did he think what was his feeling if trump got elected and wayne said i'm afraid i'm very afraid and let me tell you a story about a particular thing that happened to wayne so trump sets up his uh, uses his dad's money uh, and he blows it on a series of uh, casinos in Atlantic City. And it's virtually impossible to lose money with a casino, but Trump managed to do it. He also rubbed shoulders with the wrong kind of people. Remember for Trump Tower, he he um, he bought his concrete from Fat Tony Salerno, who was a big mafiosa. Mm -hmm. There's a, a crime family in New York City. And Wayne Barrett said, Fat Tony, Fat Tony was fat. I mean, he said it so beautifully, it's fantastic. And it's always one of my favorite sentences about one of Trump's uh, early associates. Fat Tony was fat. Anyway, Wayne uh, runs a series of stories about Trump's um, brushes with the New Jersey mafia, who were very nasty indeed, actually more dangerous and more lethal than the New York mafia in some ways. And Trump hated it. Mm. And the Atlantic City Police Force um, moonlighted and worked as Trump security um, for his casinos. And there was one big casino opening. And of course, Wayne Barrett, lots of glitzy um, people were invited, but not Wayne Barrett. And Wayne um, managed to sneak his way in. And I think Trump or one of his um, familiars spotted Wayne and he was busted and spent the night in the cells in Atlantic City. And the Atlantic City police force officers, who obviously some of whom um, were making money out of Trump as private security when they were moonlighting, mm. arranged for Wayne Barrett to be to share a cell with a nutter. And the two of them would change the radiator. And the nutter um, played with himself the whole night. Now, Wayne said this, and he wouldn't, we wouldn't say it on camera, but for me, it was an incredibly dark story. And so here is a lunatic masturbating the entire night next to an investigative reporter who has written some damaging stuff about Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is so petty and pathetic and mean-minded. He would have enjoyed that. And, and I've always felt that that was deliberate and that was like a cherry on the cake. Not only, Wayne Barrett, have we arrested you, but I have used my 
my abuse of power and influence over the Atlantic City Police Force to make sure that you're locked up with this weird nutter. And that kind of man he is, he's a man, somebody else, is it Michael? I can never remember. He's got a lovely man, Michelangelo. Michelangelo is a famous Italian painting. I'm going Gaga. I got it's him, yeah. <laughs> it's Michael. I, mean, I, I can well see Michelangelo playing with himself all night, locked up in a cell. That's another story, though. <laughs> it wasn't anyway. So there's a great writer who's written a very funny and interesting, a fascinating book I've interviewed, and his name is something like Michael Angela. Oh, anyway, never mind. He said the thing about Trump is that he lives in the minute, so that when. Yeah. He doesn't understand that what he said a month ago, like or three months ago, the virus—it's a new hoax. No, no, no. When you look at that now, it looks like a terrible and stupid thing to say. Trump doesn't care because he lives in the moment. But the other thing that Michael said, Michael D'Antonio is the name mm. of the. See, I am a little gaga, but not completely. Michael D'Antonio said that this. Trump was brought up in the 1950s, hardly ever reads a book, but he read Marvel comics. So he sees himself as a caped crusader like Batman, who is fighting for the soul of Gotham City. But there's this kind of horrible moment where the goody, the caped crusader saving Gotham City, has turned himself into the penguin, who yeah. is now watching the city's destruction and laughing because the city has turned its face to him. And, mm. and that is... That is both a kind of 1950s comic kind of bizarre, silly comic drama and also true. And there's also but there, there's another element to this, which is, um, you know, I look at Trump. and I, I think I, I can say this as a, an outer borough born and raised man myself, but what's that mean in, in English? Well, there's five boroughs to New York City, and when no, most people think of New York City, they think of of the island of Manhattan, um, which isn't even the largest. Uh, now they also think about Brooklyn, which has become sort of the new Manhattan, especially for the well-to-do and the elite. But uh, with respect to Queens, which I think is the largest borough, um, most people, if they've ever heard of Queens before, they think of Eddie Murphy and coming to America, saying "Good morning, my neighbors." And then being told, fuck you. And he's like, yes, yes, fuck you too. And people chucking their garbage out of the windows. They're quite lovely places in Queens, and we happen to live in one now. However, Donald Trump's father was a real estate, I don't even think Baron is 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 the right word, slumlord, basically, in Queens, who owned these blocks of flats, buildings, um, treated minorities horrifically. I mean, was was an out and out racist. And I think I think the allegation that he at least took part or was tangentially involved in a KKK rally in nineteen twenty nine, I think, if memory serves. brothel in the uh, Trump's granddad, who was German, ran a brothel in the Klondike, and right. Junior was in the KKK. And then grandson, Donald Trump, is Donald Trump. And, you know, there you have it, the history of the entire family. Right. From the owner in the Klondike to KKK guy. He was, to be fair, or rather the story is that he was arrested, but he was one of the arrested people in a KKK march in New York in something like 1929. And yeah. there is a record for that. And, well, so, and, 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 but, and talking of comic book, characters or i mean you, you look at fred trump 
And I mean, it's it's you 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 could draw this sort of villain with crayon. I mean, the man it looks like a skull <laughs> that had some paraffin just stretched around it. You know, it just you 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 look at him and you see an austere, forbidding, and and menacing character who I'm sure left his paw prints all over Donald Trump's psyche as a child. And then you know, of course, Trump had the brother who died of of alcoholism, so now he's a teetotaler, which is also bad because I think he acts a bit like a vicarious dry drunk uh, of the family. Um, but then I, I look at Trump and I, I see Queens wanting to be Manhattan. I see the guy not quite from the provinces, but from the, the suburbs or the outer borough area who desperately wants to be taken seriously. And when did you hear that? Was a glorified. <laughs> Sorry. If you heard that, it was a cork popping. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I got to run downstairs to get a, a top up, so I'll, I'll just carry on with my rant here. He just he wants to be he wants to be one of the glitterati, and he spent years essentially achieving that to a degree, right? I mean, he did break in uh, with with political comers. He broke in with celebrities. You know, he was seen as this unavoidable real estate baron, a kind of you know mustache twirling caricature, uh, one who is ever present in the, the headlines of the tabloids for his marriages and dalliances and so on. But he got what he wanted. And yet, you know, now he feels like he's not continuing, c continuing to be treated as this celebrated local character, right? He thought he could transform his presidency into an extension of his kind of media, you know, sort of almost semi-satirical character. And it didn't work out because the presidency is a serious job, whereas owning real estate in New York is an unserious job, at least the way he's been doing it. And I think that for him is is the, the, the real core of his, his resentment and his angst. Um, he cannot control the news cycle about himself, and he has always been able to do that. Um, but you're quite right. I mean, this is somebody who is very improvisational, thinks in the moment, can't remember the last thing he said, when he gets up in these press conferences, he's clearly not reading from a script that he's even on nodding terms with. This is the first time he's seen this text, right? I think Tom Nichols pointed this out on Twitter. It's spot on. Um, so for him, it's it's all performative. It's just all performative, and it's about the ratings. It's about the adulation. It's about, you know, everybody wants to see Donald Trump. And right now, nobody fucking wants to see Donald Trump. They want to see Dr. Fauci, or they want to see somebody who's going to tell us they want to see Andrew Cuomo. They want someone who's going to tell us, right, here's what's going on. Here's where we think it's headed. And, you know, inshallah, we don't all fucking perish because we don't have enough hospital beds or ventilators or, you know, um, treatment methods. Now, uh, so t so I, um, so by the way, we, we should try and, um, you're listening to The Last Call. I'm John Sweeney, uh, my American pal. Michael Weiss uh, with two boozy hacks. Oh, you did it. You did it. Did you notice that you did it? You did that. I have to say, so years what? of living in the UK, whenever I would go on BBC. Oh, did I say Michael Weiss? You I'm... did. And the, the producers would always say, and how do you pronounce your surname? And I'd say <laughs> Weiss, like soft W. And then I, they'd introduce me and they say, and now we're joined by Michael Weiss. Like I, I just fell off of a fucking Bavarian sausage cart. I said, listen, look. I know you're trying to be kind of culturally sensitive here, 
but yeah. I've never even stepped foot in Germany. You know, my my family, I think it's it's probably an invented surname because I did it ancestry DNA and we're all from like the Polish shtetl. So you don't have to do me that solid. It comes across a bit weird and creepy, but I know it's okay. I forgive you and I'm not making any dark insinuations about um, your thoughts toward my tribe. But uh, yeah, you did do it though. I had to point that out. I've had a, a fair bit of grief from the far right. I am. Um, uh, I apologize. Well, now, now they'll like you. That's that's like the um, the OK sign, right? Pronouncing <laughs> pronouncing the Jewish surname with the, with the hard consonants. Fuck, fuck you. I once did a story. Uh, I, 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 by the way, we're going to last an hour, so um, get a drink. We've got twelve minutes to go. I once did a story. I get a drink though. I'm not going to hear what you have to say, which which well, might actually you help. Drink, you got to stay. So I did a story in the whenever it was the late 80s um, or the mid 80s uh, with a wonderful Magnum um, uh, photographer for the Observer magazine about neo-Nazis in the states of Milwaukee. I think uh, we, we ended up and um, uh, Len, um, Len's Jewish um, and I'm English, but of Irish Catholic Liverpool Irish and then Irish Irish um, descent, I guess. And um, there's a moment at this time, I've got a beard and I've got a, uh, it's cold, it's snowing outside and I've got a big black coat and a hat um, because I'm going bald and um, a big black hat. And one of the Nazis, these neo-Nazis in Milwaukee has a, um, a baseball um, with um, nails in it and they're listening to um, um, uh, an LP of Hitler's speeches. And they're saying, hey, hey, this guy looks a bit Jewish to me. And uh, anyway, um, we managed to get some pictures and get some quotes and fuck off. And then we're on the doorstep and the Len turns to me and says, well, Jew boy, let's go for a drink. <laughs> <laughs> and I did. I did uh, Len bought me a drink because I was tempted at some point to say, well, actually, I'm not Jewish, but he is. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I, and, and I did. Uh, and to be fair, it reminds I, me that I, I was once told a, uh, a funny story. I wish I could remember the name of this because you mentioned photography, Magnum. And this was a legendary uh, news photographer. And uh, he was doing he, he was uh, shooting um, a big, big profile of Yasser Arafat. I think this must have been for television. So perhaps he was also in film or whatever. Anyway, um and I, the, the story as told to me was he was setting up the, the lighting just right and, you know, going over and, and sort of delicately uh, moving the kafia on Arafat's head and, you know, all that. And Arafat was sort of bantering with him and quite chummy. And all of a sudden he notices out of the corner of his eye that one of the, the, the lights uh, started to tilt ever so slightly. I mean, it was, it was now falling on the head of the PLO's head and could well take him out. And without missing a beat, this photographer slash camera guy runs over, grabs the light by the pole and screams, Oy vey, whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> because I suppose I buried the lead. He was Jewish, if you hadn't figured that out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, right, so um, we got uh, a few minutes to go listening to the uh, the last call. Uh, so being a twat, I put 500 quid on Joe Biden to beat 
Donald Trump in the next presidential election. It's the biggest bit I've ever done in my life. I just, I kind of want it to, to happen. I want it to be so. Have I wasted my money, Mike? I don't know. I mean, I've, I've been going around in a sort of gloomier than usual mood thinking. I actually, I could see him well um, getting reelected. Um, no. uh, that was pre-coronavirus. But today, yeah. though, I read in, in the, you know, in the paper that the stock markets are rallying because this thing seems to be tapering off, at least in certain hot spots and all that. And it's a long road to November. My, my concern is this. Look, um, you know, I, 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 I kind of like Joe Biden as a character, but for the wrong reasons. Um, you know, he I've always seen him as a bit of the, the Dan Quayle of the Democratic Party, a man who just couldn't help himself from committing some god awful gaffe or saying something a bit incomprehensible. And yes, I read that very eloquent and sympathetic uh, profile of him in The Atlantic, which said, in fact, he suffers and has suffered from a bad stammer his entire life. So I, I give him credit for that, for for overcoming it. But, you know, even those who have known him for ages, uh, including diplomats who, who who quite like him and see him as a a champion of the post-war liberal international order led by the United States, has said he's not just lost a step, he's lost quite a few steps in the last four or five years. And I mean, you've seen some of these weird pressers he's delivered from his, his bunker about the coronavirus pandemic. And it's just, I, I do think he's not all there. And um, what worries me about that is, look, um, Americans tend not to... I, I don't agree. What, what's wrong with God? I mean, I'm a bit gaga. It's okay. It's better than. I mean, he he's fundamentally a decent man. You can see he's that. Fundamentally he's, a decent man. The, the, the problem, John, for me is that you know Donald Trump. Um, he he sort of he sinks his teeth into being a punchline, uh, and and Joe Biden is comes across as more doddering, geriatric, and 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 you know error prone. I mean, Trump, again, because and this comes back to this sort of we've all become inured and desensitized to Trump, the phenomenon. Um, I could see the two of them up on the stage together and Donald Trump dominating him just by attacking him, savaging him, bringing up things, uh, his dead son, for instance, that will just so discombobulate him that, that his he will just go to mush in real time. And the other thing that worries me is, you know, yes, there was this massive, miraculous turnaround on Super Tuesday um, and thank you to the African-American voter and thank you to uh, suburban moms who I think will be responsible for delivering him to the White House if he should be elected. But Americans tend not to wage protest votes that are successful in terms of determining the president of the United States. Uh, you could argue Hillary Clinton, people voted against her as a protest, but really, I mean, they were voting for Trump and they just didn't like Hillary Clinton. Uh, the best essay I've ever read on what decides the American presidency was written by Jeff Greenfield, uh, a former CNN uh, colleague, although he, his tenure predated mine. And it was called the Bugs Bunny versus Daffy Duff, Duck effect. And it's basically, you know, you always have two candidates at the end in a presidential contest. Bugs, who is cool, calm, collected. He's the man with the plan. He doesn't have to, you know, throw a fit. He doesn't have to make a big show of things and things always go his way. Daffy who is apoplectic, I mean, the bill literally going around the back of his, his head, uh, fuming, furious, more intense, more passionate, wants it so much more, and then fails. 
And, and if, if you look at sort of contemporary presidential history, it really does add up. I mean, George W. Bush, Al Gore, Bush was was bugs. Uh, Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush. I mean, Bill Clinton is the consummate bugs, right? Uh, Hillary and Donald. Donald would be daffy on any other day of the week, but up against Hillary Clinton, he came across a little bit bugs-like. My concern is with Biden. Biden is is going to be angry. Biden is going to be a bit all over the place. I don't want Donald Trump to come across as the bugs. Now, the good news, I, I suppose, electorally speaking, is he so badly cocked up the response to this plague. Yes. Yeah, maybe people will take it out on him. But again, Americans have a very short term memory and it's a long road from here to November. And if the stock market does rally, I mean, look, I, I'm not an economist and, and everything I'm reading has sort of a, a, apocalypse and neon lights flashing above what <laughs> this is going to do long term to the U.S. marketplace and how it's forever going to change the nature of commerce and, you know, unemployment rates have skyrocketed. But I'm worried that, you know, his his core constituency, whatever that number is, 46 percent or, you know, even less, 36 percent of the, the, the voter. They, it doesn't matter what he does. He, he could, as he once put it, literally go on to Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody in the head and they would support him and say this is all fake news or the person deserved it. Right. And, you know, up until this whole crisis hit, you were beginning to see independents, uh, not really Democrats, but but people in, in swing states sort of essentially, you know, making an accommodation and saying, yeah, we, he's an asshole. He's an embarrassment. But, you know, we're doing OK. The economy is good. We haven't gone to war. Um, let's stick with the crazy person we know and not take a chance. And then I haven't even got into what I consider the fundamental disarray of the Democratic Party as evidenced by this primary season. Um, and also the fact that it's now in this in this state of uh, okay. that's a story on, on the essential thing, though, I uh, I mean, I've been around the world a fair old bit and I've seen some terrible things. But one thing I know for certain is you cannot hide mass death. Yeah. So I think it's true to say that Trump could have gone out on Fifth Avenue and shot somebody and he could have got away with it. What he's kind of done, this is unfair, but I'm, I'm running it for the sake of the metaphor. He's about to shoot something like a quarter of a million people, maybe 200,000, and that he cannot go, get away with. He's in charge, he's responsible, and he didn't act properly at the right time. It still would have been awful. It's awful for the whole world. Mm. But, but nevertheless, um, he has... And I do not think it's survivable. And I think it's possible that he he could. Um, I don't think the virus is going to go away until we've got a vaccine and until that vaccine is shared across an awful lot of people. So um, we're in uh, basically we're in a stop start mode for the next 18 months until we get a virus. And even then there is trouble. Um, our way of life will change. It'll get back. It got back after the um the Spanish flu in uh, 1918, 1919, and then the Roaring Twenties happened and cocktails were invented and all those kind of wonderful things. So we'll get our life back, but for the next couple of years we're in trouble, and I think Trump is doomed. Now, we've got a couple more minutes. You're listening to um, The Last Call, Michael Weiss. John, sorry, Michael Michael Weiss and John Sweeney. Uh, one of us can pronounce uh, the other's name and I can't, and it's embarrassing. So so Trump-Putin, that's the, the thing we've been talking about. One minute each. 
Who's worst, Trump or Putin? You go first, Michael. I mean, I have to still stick with Putin just because he's cunning and he's sinister. Um, and, you know, what he's managed to get away with, I mean, you know, to scale, let's put it, um, given that, that Russia is a smaller economy, um, smaller population, but what he's, the, the, the chaos and instability he's managed to sow in the West, particularly in the last five years, I think is going to be much harder to collectively recover from than America putting Humpty Dumpty back together again when Donald Trump is out of office, which he will be for all the hysterical chatter about him declaring himself president for life and, and, and the rest of it. Again, the American institutions have proven quite resilient to his power grab, whereas in Russia, as you know, as, as we've written for years, uh, the institutions have become Putinized. I mean, they, they can't do but that. Um, so I, I would say on that level, he's worse. I take your point, though, and I know it might be going over a minute, that, you know, the, the, the butcher's bill here objectively puts Trump over the top within the context of the coronavirus. But again, I come back to, you know, intent, malicious intent versus criminal incompetence and negligence. Um, which is worse. I suppose you can make the case that criminal negligence when it leads to more people suffering or being killed is worse. Uh, I don't know that I'm I'm there yet, though, with him. I'm, I'm beginning to think that uh, Trump is worse. Mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm excited to, um, um, to register a simple thing, which is that you think that Trump will lose and therefore my 500 quid bet on Joe Biden is safe. Thank God for that. Um, I don't know, John. I, I don't know if he's going to. Again, I, I do not put it past him to pull this rabbit out of his hat and to, to get reelected. I just don't. I, I, well, I think you're wrong. I think he's I think he's toast. Right. Hope, We're right. not going to run much longer. Let's remember, folks, uh, this is a podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Two Boozy Hacks, separately uh, at Michael D. Weiss. Weiss? Weiss? Fuck. Sorry. So awful. It's becoming so, a strange lovey and tick, like the arm <laughs> flying up. So just just watch yourself there. Soon you'll have Tommy Robinson writing you fan mail. Tommy Robinson and I do not get on. Um, my father fought in the Second World War and the Battle of Atlantic and both my grandfathers fought in the First World War. We are not. Uh, Swedes are not Nazis, but I'm sorry I can't pronounce your name properly. It's Weiss. So. From at Michael D. Weiss and at John Sweeney Raw, Michael and I would like to say thanks for listening and you'll hear us again. Take care. <laughs>